bringing you the truth behind the news. Welcome to The New American. Welcome, everyone. I'm Paul Dragu. We're glad you can join us. The New American Daily takes the most important news stories of the day. We get rid of the propaganda and we bring you the truth. So if you enjoyed this show, please share these episodes with others and help us get past the censors working against us. Now, The New American recently interviewed a charter bus driver who transported a bus full of migrants from Texas to Denver, Colorado. Senior editor Rebecca Terrell will soon join us to discuss what she learned after talking with the driver. Also, a coalition of groups and individuals are suing to stop water fluoridation everywhere in the U.S. Among the group's concerns is that fluoride has toxic effects on young, developing brains. And later in the show, John Burr Society field resource creator Evan Mulch joins us to discuss the latest attack on our organization by a propagandist posing as a historian. We have all that coming up. But first, according to the Biden administration, the economy is growing by leaps and bounds. And all that grumbling about it, well, that's just election year MAGA propaganda. And at first glance, the January BLS jobs report appears to support what Biden and the sycophantic mainstream media are saying. That last month, the economy added 353,000 new jobs, almost double the expected number. Not only that, but average hourly earnings unexpectedly rose from a 4.1% rate of annual increase to 4.5%. And unemployment rates, instead of rising, stayed steady. So, according to that, the economy is great and there's no coming recession. Things are just peachy. Nothing to see here, folks. Move along and get back to scrolling on your phone. But the truth is, the latest jobs report is a tissue of lies designed to boost Biden's dismal re-election chances. As far as those 353,000 new jobs go, they're a product of statistical sorcery. The BLS is a government agency, and it likes to manipulate the data using all kinds of creative adjustments, including seasonal adjustments. The goal is to show the economy in the best possible light, not the most accurate. Meanwhile, there's a much more reliable source of jobs data, and that's the ADP, which samples only private sector jobs, and it shows a much more accurate, non-politicized view. And according to the ADP, jobs creation is in steep decline. The latest BLS report, it turns out, considers part-time and government jobs. But when you leave out the BLS's creative seasonal adjustments, what we learn is that the economy actually shed more than 2 million jobs in January. This continued a months-long trend of contraction. As for all those new jobs, they're all part-time jobs. A year ago, the country actually had more full-time jobs than it does today. And about those rising hourly earnings, the BLS fabricated that number by simply revising downward the amount of average hours worked from 34.3 to 34.1 hours per week. This resulted in a higher rate of earnings per hour worked. What about inflation and debt, the other issues Americans are concerned about? Well, the national debt just rocketed past $34 trillion in January, only three months after passing $33 trillion. In other words, we are now hurling toward national bankruptcy, and the only people worried about it are those living outside the beltway. And inflation, while not rising as quickly as a year ago, is keeping prices sky high relative to wages. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, in a recent interview with 60 Minutes, made it clear that he's very concerned about the national debt. But is the national debt a danger to the economy, in your view? In the long run, 
the U.S. is on an unsustainable fiscal path. The U.S. federal government's on an unsustainable fiscal path. And that just means that the debt is growing faster than the economy. I have the sense this worries you very much. Over the long run, of course it does. You know, we're effectively, we're borrowing from future generations. It's time for us to get back to putting a priority on fiscal sustainability. And, and sooner is better than later. Join me to discuss today's stories is editor-in-chief of the New American Magazine, Gary Benoit, and executive senior editor, Steve Bonta. Welcome, gentlemen. Hi, Paul. Hello. So, Steve, I kept hearing Jerome Powell say, in the long run, I feel like when someone emphasizes that portion of the conversation so much, I get the feeling that maybe it's not so in the long run, that he's worried about uh, maybe closer to the future. Well... I mean, one of the most worrying things, and there are many things to worry about in this package, but the fact that we, in just a couple months' time, we've added another trillion dollars to the federal debt, yeah. the official federal debt. Now, mind you, the real debt, no one really knows what the real debt is. There are a lot of ideas about that. Mm. You know, when you bundle in all of these, you know, the uh, the uh, off-budget, unfunded uh, obligations, that you know, Social Security and Medicare, all this stuff, and no one really knows or really wants to try too hard to figure out how exactly to reckon with that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, the problem is when Mr. Powell says we need to get back to a sense of fiscal responsibility, I'm scratching my head wondering- Where's he been? When exactly have mm -hmm. we been fiscally responsible as a country? Yeah. I, I mean, in my entire, you know, cog uh, cognizant adult life, we've been worrying about the national debt. We are a country and also a culture with an unfortunate- Mm -hmm. excessive attachment to debt, both public and private. Um, it's not entirely the government's fault that Americans privately are so willing to max out credit cards and borrow money for, for items that they don't really need and so forth. It's, it's a systemic issue that at some point, you know, we're going to have to come to grips with. I don't know that it's been otherwise since the Great Depression. Yeah. Those of us like myself who are old enough to have known lots of people who grew up and lived during the Great Depression and developed forced habits of extreme frugality. My parents and grandparents, both mm -hmm. among them, you know, were people who, my grandfather, who died a fairly wealthy man, never owned a single credit card in his yeah. entire life. So opposed was he because he was born in 1914. He came of age during the 19, late 1920s and through the 1930s. He experienced the Great Depression firsthand. And that entire generation, many of whom, by the way, were bankrupted as a result of their excesses in the Roaring Twenties, okay? Yeah. You know, they bought, all, bought into the whole stock market craze and then they lost everything. And so they're, they were forced to be frugal for, you know, a decade and a half. And even after the Great Depression, it wasn't until the early 1960s that the stock market returned to the pre-1929 yeah. highs, okay? So, so, so people were chastened by that experience and nothing remotely similar has happened since. And so we've gotten to the point where, where debt has become, indebtedness has become the norm. Yeah. And the, the government just is a reflection of that. Oh, yeah. That's what I was going to ask you, because it sounds like you're, you're tying this credit culture that we have as yes. Americans with the national debt. Gary, you've been writing about <laughs> this for decades. I think I still have some uh, a story you wrote back in, I think, 88, 87 on Reagan's, uh, his administration's lack of fiscal restraint. So I, I, how do you rack, how do you compare what, what's happening today to, to the warnings you were issuing decades ago? Well, a lot of similarities, but obviously the big difference is that things are much worse today than they were then. But I remember when Reagan became president, he initially was elected in 1980, and uh, he took office in 1981. And soon after taking office, 
he warned at the time mm-hmm. that we were approaching a $1 trillion yeah. national debt. <gasps> Uh, I know, shocking. Went one trillion dollars, and uh, that was he, a big deal then. Uh, that was a big deal then, and uh, and actually uh, later that year, the national debt limit was increased to a point where it was increased above one trillion dollars. And and Reagan at the time said, "Well, uh, we may have to do this. We may have to allow the debt to go over one trillion uh, before we're able to turn it around." And of course, now we're talking about a thirty-four trillion dollar yeah. national debt. And uh, as Steve pointed out, uh, it, it just took a couple months, uh, uh, three months, to to get to that point from 33 trillion to 34 trillion. Mm. Uh, and yet, it took the entire history of the country up to 1981 to get to one trillion. So things are really accelerating, and obviously, it is not sustainable. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, should, we should point something out. Of course, if you adjust for inflation, people say, well, you know, $1 trillion back in 1980 is not the same as they say. That's true. Mm-hmm. Of course, inflation's part of the problem, too. We don't have time to talk about that today. But here's the, the, the real metric is the debt-to-GDP ratio, okay? And so it, it hit unexampled highs during World War II. It went over 100% for the first time ever, okay? And then it went back down, and it remained back down, started to climb up again beginning in the 80s and 90s. And now it's back to not just past 100% again, but it is past the World War II levels, and we're living in a relatively peaceful time, okay? Uh, And so this is the issue, is that this is unsustainable in terms of percentage of the GDP. We owe more than the entire country in the aggregate earns every year. Yeah. And that is really worrisome. It's scary. And that's what Powell was pointing out that this clearly we can't continue doing this because it's going to be it's going to spell big trouble uh speaking of i guess we'll have another bill coming up in in march that we'll be looking at thanks gentlemen after this a bus driver who drove migrants out of texas told us about what he saw in 1988 the john birch society produced a documentary so predictive it's as though they had a time machine Out of Control, Immigration Invasion was produced and hosted by investigative reporter William F. Jasper and looks at the growing problem of unrestricted illegal immigration that, in 1988, already saw upwards of 10 to 20 million illegal aliens within the borders of the U.S. Unknown agents from around the world using the southern border as easy entry. Certainly some are innocent families escaping hardship, but also certainly some are criminals, potentially terrorists, Is it not appropriate that there be some criteria for the entry of any sovereign nation? Why should the U.S. be different than Canada, Germany, Russia, Japan, or every other country on the planet? Out of control. Immigration invasion. Watch this time capsule of prescient wisdom at thenewamerican.com slash outofcontrol. The New American has just released our latest bookazine, a collection of articles on self-reliance. It's called Self-Reliance, Foundation of Freedom. Without individual responsibility and without the ability to take care of ourselves without government help, we cannot be free. In this Polish Collector's Edition, we have articles on a number of important topics, including the self-sufficiency of the founders, preparing for a worst-case scenario, firearm self-reliance, building a wood shack, and the importance of community, among many other topics. Now, the authors of the articles are experts in their fields. We encourage you to get a copy. You can order your copy at thenewamerican.com forward slash shop, or you can call our office at 800-727-8783. However you do it, 
Make sure you get your copy of Self-Reliance, The Foundation of Freedom. The New American senior editor, Rebecca Terrell, recently had a conversation with a charter bus driver from Texas. The driver was working for a company that shuttled illegal migrants out of the state. He wanted to remain anonymous, so we've brought Rebecca in to relay what she learned. Well, welcome, Rebecca. So I understand you had a pretty interesting conversation with this driver. Tell us a little bit about it. Yes, I did. Um, as you know, the, these buses are being hired by the state of Texas to transport illegal immigrants to sanctuary cities across the country. And I ran into one of the drivers the other day. He um, spoke with me on condi- condition of anonymity just for privacy purposes. So, but it, his story was very interesting. Um, he did not, he only, I said, how many times have you taken, you know, where have you gone? He said, I only did one. He, I don't only did one run because I said, did you, did you not feel safe? And he said, no, that wasn't it. It was that I don't think this is right. And I don't want to make a living doing something that compromises my ethics. So I had to, I really admired him for that. Mm. But um, it was an interesting tale that he had to tell, however. I mean, he's obviously a commercial driver's license holder and has a lot of friends in the industry, too. I asked him, has anyone else done what you did and and stopped uh, making these runs? And he said, no, there's a lot of money to be made in it. They're paying these drivers a lot more for these uh, illegal immigrant runs than they normally get for a, a typical charter bus situation. Um, he actually said too, he did not quit the company. Um, he was, he told his boss, uh, look, I don't want to do any more of these out of state runs. Give me, you know, in state and local and I'll still do those for the, you know, the lower pay. Yeah. And they, he said they benched him. They just basically didn't give him any more jobs at all. So yes. isn't that interesting? Well, this that is, is a private bus company. Go back a little bit, too, because um, I read your transcript of the interview, which, by the way, will be available soon at thenewamerican.com. And it sounds like mm-hmm. they, the charter buses or the charter companies get paid significantly more than they normally, not just a little bit more, but it sounds like significantly. Do you know if that's that's Texas money? Is it is it state money that they're paying that I guess Abbott uh, administration uh, has worked out? It is. Um, it is the. St- it is state money. Um, Abbott. In fact, the NBC affiliate down in Austin just this past week uh, re- released some information. It re- retrieved from a FOIA request that explained down to the penny how much the state of Texas has spent so far, or I should say, as of January 10th of this year, mm-hmm. and the amount exceeds 124.6 million dollars. Wow. So, and this particular friend of mine said that he heard that, but that companies were getting $25,000 per bus load, which seems just unreal and exorbitant. But if you do the math based on this FOIA information that NBC released, it makes sense. Um, something like, uh, 2000, mm-hmm. 2200 buses, yeah. and, you know, averaging 45 passengers per bus. And of course you have to remember they're going to places like Washington, DC, Chicago, New, New York. York, Denver, yeah. Austin, I think, yeah. um, you know, these sanctuary cities. So, so another interesting thing is apparently a lot of the people, most, almost everyone on the bus were, uh, military-aged men, right? I think the in your, in, yes. in your transcript, I saw there was like 30 out of 35 were military-aged men, and everyone on the bus had these things right here, these MREs, uh, compliments of, of, the U, of U.S. taxpayers, huh? 
Yes, and that bag actually says on it, you can read it and make sure I'm quoting it correctly, but it says, a gift from the people of the United States of America. Food and gift from the people of the United States of America. And what it is, is that bag right there represents a meal. Um, it looks like a lot, but it's it's calorie content for equivalent of a meal. Um, they probably pack it with, with fluff <laughs> to make it look like more, to make you think you're getting more. But they give everybody a blanket that looks like a hospital blanket and bottled water and that food. Mm -hmm. And you get, and this is the strange thing. The, the driver told me what happens with a normal charter. You know, you go pick up your, your, people that you're shuttling from here to there, be it a, a high school football team or, you know, a wedding party or, or something like that, you know, just the normal chauffeur type service. You pick them up, you hang out, and then you drive them home and your job is done. In this case, you are told, okay, you're, you're told, okay, go to El Paso or one of the border cities where they're, where they're loading buses. Um, you go to your hotel and you wait there and you wait for a text message that tells you where you're supposed to exactly go to load up and only then do you find out where you're actually going. You don't know as the driver, whether you're going to Denver, whether you're going to Boston, where, where am I going? How long is this going to take? And um, so this particular driver got to El Paso on a Monday night, waited all day Tuesday, just twiddling his thumbs. Finally, Wednesday morning gets the text, come to El Paso to this particular place, load up and you're going to Colorado. Mm -hmm. And it was only a nine hour trip. And so it just took a day. He, he loaded that Wednesday morning, went to Denver, dropped them off, spent the night in a hotel and then drove back, drove home the next day. But he said it was just very weird. And he said that uh, TEMA, the, which I believe stands for Texas Emergency Management uh, Agency, um, provides two unarmed guards. And he said they don't like the use of the word guards. It's something like escorts uh, to go with the driver and with this busload of passengers. Um, and But even the TEMA, he said he couldn't explain this, but the, the two TEMA guards who were with him said something was sketchy about that busload because usually they're, when they, they associate border uh, issues with families coming across and they're used to seeing children mm -hmm. and young mothers. But these were five women, five single women and 30 single men. And like you said, they were all, you know, young, adult, able-bodied military mm -hmm. age men. And so I did get into a conversation with the driver about what speculations that he thinks might be going on, but yeah, that that'll take us down a rabbit hole, won't it? <laughs> right. Tell us about uh, a pair. I didn't know this, but also in your transcript there, there is some sort of interesting dynamic that Denver has. Apparently, they've got really clever where I guess they get money for taking people in, but then they have a way to get rid of them. Can you explain more about that? That may be the most interesting thing about right. this. Right. The city actually has a homeless fund, and with it, they purchase airline tickets for these immigrants and send them who where knows they where. Are, huh? Now, you know, you might say, oh, that's just hearsay. Well, we know that that's happening in Chicago. We see it. You can go on uh, alternative media and you have reporters who are interviewing people as they get off these buses and they have train tickets in their hands that they've been given uh, courtesy of who? I mean, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But they have train tickets and they go mm -hmm. They get taken to the train station and, um, you know, Chicago is going, oh, come here. We, we love immigrants 
immigrants will take care of you. And then they're immediately shipping them out. And the reporters are asking, where are you going? Well, I'm going to Wisconsin. I'm going to Michigan. I'm, I'm going all these different places. And they look at their um, tickets and they're from places like Venezuela and they're from Peru and they're from this. I did ask this driver, what, what were the nationalities that you saw? And he said he didn't think there was anybody on his bus that was not of Hispanic descent. Now, you know, whether it was Guatemala or Venezuela or Mexico, he didn't know. But, you know, he didn't. But he said, I've heard his he said his other friends have had people from Russia and people from Haiti and, you know, all over, all yeah. over the world. So, yeah, yeah. And um, obviously there's been a lot of reports collab corroborating that we have people from, you know, especially from China. I've, I've heard Russia multiple times and whatnot and in the Middle East. So thank you, Rebecca, for that terrific work. Uh, next up. We're going to look at a landmark trial that could end the practice of putting fluoride in America's drinking water. Imprisonment, forced labor, permanent separation from my family, perhaps death. I knew what could happen to people who were caught trying to defect, but the watchtowers stood yards away. The possibility of a new life in a different world, one without tyranny, was within sight, the West. I thought of the rewards no longer crushed under the boot of communism. I would work and make money, no longer restrained by the chains of collectivism. I would say what I wanted, without fear of spies and informants nearby. I would be free. The frozen rain and Romanian mud sipped through my gloves and cloths. I fantasized about the fire burning in the wood stove of my parents' home, but I pushed those thoughts from my mind, closed my eyes, and waited for the cover of the darkness. Get Defector, a true story of tyranny, liberty, and purpose by Mark Hobavkovich with Paul Dragu, a thrilling page-turner that will remind you how precious yet vulnerable freedom is. Available at shopjbs.org or Amazon. For a limited time, get 20% off your entire order using promo code DEFECTOR20 when you purchase DEFECTOR at shopjbs.org. Hey listeners and readers, we want to hear from you. We want to know what you think about the stories we report, the way we report them, and what you'd like to hear more and less of, and any other comments or questions related to the New American Daily. You can send your comments and questions to dailyshow at thenewamerican.com. That's dailyshow at thenewamerican.com. And during our Friday episodes, we'll read some of your comments. Again, send your questions to dailyshow at thenewamerican.com. Well, there's one medication that you might be taking, taking without knowing, and it's because the government decided it was in your best interest. That is fluoride, which is said to prevent tooth decay, and it's very possible that it's being added to your drinking water. Now, there's no other reason to add it. It doesn't treat water in any way. It's just there so you don't get cavities. Well, a group is now challenging this, and we're going to be speaking today to Michael Conant. Michael is the lead attorney in the groundbreaking lawsuit against the EPA that seeks to ban the addition of fluoridation chemicals to drinking water. Why? Well, besides the fact that we don't want to be taking medicines without our consent, um, the studies show, even studies conducted by the National Institutes of Health, that added fluoride can cause neurodevelopmental disorders in children. 
That was Kim Iverson talking about a federal case that's been filed against the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. The plaintiffs want to ban fluoride from all drinking water in America. The case is being heard in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California in San Francisco by Judge Edward Chen. It's been years in the making. Food and Water Watch sued the EPA in 2017 after the agency denied its petition to end water fluoridation under the Toxic Substances Control Act. This trial is the first to challenge the dismissal of such a petition. Other plaintiffs include Fluoride Action Network, Moms Against Fluoridation, and other advocacy groups and individuals. Right now, the decision to fluoridate water rests at the state and local levels. But if the EPA bans the practice, it will be eliminated across the country. In September of 2022, the National Toxicology Program released a 1,500-page report that concluded that 64 out of 72 studies showed a link between fluoride and lowered IQ. Dental officials at the CDC and the NIH put pressure on the U.S. Department of Human Services to prevent the release of the review. The report was suppressed for years before it was eventually released. From the very beginning, before mass fluoridation was implemented, this magazine's predecessor, American Opinion, spoke loud and clear against the practice. Here's what we said in the September 1958 edition of American Opinion. The unassailable fact is that fluoridation is a highly controversial and potentially very dangerous program. It forces all the people in the community to absorb into their system small daily doses of a deadly poison so that the teeth only of children in a certain age bracket may allegedly be helped. There are eminent authorities, including physicians and dentists and entire medical groups who categorically reject the program as harmful or at least as not proven safe. All right, gentlemen. So notch another one in the we told you so category here. Uh, this is one of those issues that the John Birch Society, and as I said, that's our parent company, we kind of got a lot of crap for it. They're like, oh, those crazy birchers going around and, you know, conspiracy theories about fluoridation. And here we have, and I'm sure this is not the only study, and clearly people have known for a long time that there is a risk with this. Well, absolutely there is a risk. And uh, you're right, Paul, that the John Birch Society warned about this going way back to the beginning. In fact, in a sense, before the birth of the John Birch Society in December of 1958, because you... You uh, quoted from American Opinion magazine yeah. uh, a couple months earlier, mm -hmm. but the uh, you know at the time there wasn't as much evidence as there is today. Today there is all kinds of evidence yeah. showing that there is a safety hazard, and uh, that's something that uh, we really should be concerned about, uh, particularly with, with children. But the main position of the John Birch Society at the time was this whole concept of mass medication, and of course. At the time, the liberal media poked fun at us for that. Mm. My goodness, how could you say this is communist? Isn't that ridiculous? Ha, 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 ha. But isn't it communist, though, when you uh, put something in the water supply that is not to not designed to treat the water, but is designed to medicate the people where yeah. you do not have informed consent, where everyone is forced to uh, take this medication? Of course it was communist. Yeah. And I think people have a much better understanding of that today, particularly in the COVID era, than they did uh, back in 1958. Yeah, what do you think, Steve? Is, uh, do you think COVID may have spurred others to see why it's dangerous to have this uh, this fluoride in water we didn't consent to? Maybe. I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know anything about the science of, the, of, of fluoride and fluoridation. The principle of the thing, of course, as Gary was saying, is, is crystal clear. People should not be compelled to medicate uh, 
under under and these sorts of pretexts. But I, I do think it's interesting. I was thinking as you were talking about this, the contrast between the, the, the fluoridation controversy and the vaccine and something else that happened at about the same time, which has been all but forgotten about, which is the thalidomide scandal. Mm. Okay. And in the case of thalidomide, thalidomide was a was it was a medication that it turned out occasionally produced growth, uh, uh, grotesque yeah. birth defects in children. I guess it caused them to be born without limbs and things like this. They were called thalidomide babies. And the response to the thalidomide crisis was not anything like, you know, the response to criticism over fluoridation or vaccines or anything like this. It was to instantly, uh, you know, crack down, take the drug off the market, mm -hmm. and, of course, to create a more federal government, you know, apparatus to oversee the production of drugs, okay? Yeah. What's the difference? The difference is that the you thalidomide crisis was something that could be easily used to further empower the government at the expense of the private sector, which is, of course, what the left, what the communists or whatever people, all these people want to do. Whereas, of course, if you criticize fluoridation, if you criticize compulsory vaccination, you're criticizing the government in its infinite wisdom. And we can't have this. So, you know, Regardless, ultimately, we end up this this, this grotesquerie that, irrespective of the science, the main point is that the government can never be allowed to lo you lose face. It always has to be right yeah. in the, these kinds of programs, and the private sector is always assumed to be venal and vicious and um, susceptible to these sorts of horrific errors. Hence, the need for ever expanding federal oversight over the pharmaceuticals and over the entire rest of the of the private sector. Yeah, I mean. I I think what's interesting is that there's not enough people who are saying it's like, look, it could be good for you. And that shouldn't even be the tox the, the toxicity of this shouldn't necessarily even be the central point. And I noticed that some of them are. That seems to be the way that this uh, this case is approaching it is they're trying to go through that, perhaps knowing that this argument that we should be free to, to that we should at least consent to these things, uh, knowing that perhaps. That's not exactly an argument that'll work. So they're well, going with that. It's interesting to note, Paul, that the market, you know, one could say, okay, well, theoretically, if there's some good to fluoridated water, particularly children of a certain age or something like that, well, then let the market take care of it. Surely there would be a market for for fluoridated bottles of water to, mm -hmm. to, to, to give yeah. your toddler yeah. whatever. the bottles of water. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. There are no, there is zero market for fluoridated water. Yeah, There's was. a big market for non-fluoridated mineral water. Yeah. There are many people, and of course, water filters and all these things yeah, are designed yeah. to That's extract fluoridation and other things great from water. But, but a fluor yeah. fluoride really uh, was a good thing. And if that's something the market would want, would want, um, mm. wouldn't that would not necessarily have to be through the water supply? Well, we or, have or a bottle of water, uh, right? Uh, you we have toothpaste. Pills. So you could buy uh, <laughs> fluoridated toothpaste, toothpaste right? with fluoride yeah, in it, yeah. or or maybe you could get uh, fluoride tac tac mm -hmm. um, tablets. But it does not have to be delivered through the the water supply. Yeah, and and there's other concerns actually. There's other health concerns about this, and I, we don't necessarily have time to get into them, but. I mean, there's there's been various rumors and things like that, but this alone, and we're not going to necessarily get into them, but I bet you over long run, we're going to find out that those things may be true as well. But the, this idea that it, idea alone that 64 of these studies out of 70 something showed a risk, even if that's not necessarily 100% ironclad, that alone should cause every municipality to be like, well, why would we risk it? There's nothing. There's no point in risking well, that, it. That's a good point. But let's say the studies found exactly the opposite. Let's say that every study found that fluoride was was yeah. helpful. Uh, why would that be used as a rationale to force everyone to take it? 
And if you could put fluoride into the water supply, which is, again, having nothing to do with treating the water, has to do with medicating people. Yeah. Uh, what else can you do to the water supply to treat people? Yeah. Uh, could these COVID vaccines, uh, uh, for example, be or, or could anything else be put into the water supply not having to do with treating the water? You know, at this, time, at this point, nothing is beyond what they would do. Thank you, gentlemen. After this, Evan Moach joins us to dispel the lies that so-called historians tell about the John Birch Society. If Americans want to remain a free and sovereign nation, more people need to understand the principles and values that built this great nation. At the John Birch Society, we have the organization, the plan, and the resources to do just that. Our founder, Robert Welch, said, education is our total strategy and truth our only weapon. Go to jbs.org to learn more including how you can get involved to work locally and impact nationally. Join the John Birch Society today. For more news and in-depth analysis from the New American Magazine, the kind that you will not get anywhere else, make sure you have a subscription to our twice-monthly print edition of the magazine. No other magazine has been as accurate and for as long about where policy and culture were heading than the New American. You can subscribe online at thenewamerican.com. Just hit the magazine tab on top, and then on the drop-down, hit the subscribe button. Or, if you prefer, you can call for a subscription. Call 1-800-727-8783, Monday through Friday from 8 to 5 Central Time. That's 800-727-8783. Matthew Dalek is the author of the book Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. The book, as the title suggests, is about the parent company of the new American, the John Birch Society. Dalek is a history professor at George Washington University, and like most professors in American universities, his political tribalism makes him ignorant on matters he's supposed to be an expert on. Last night, Dalek gave a talk on his purported expertise, the John Birch Society. And the John Birch Society's field resource creator, Evan Mulch, took one for all of us and watched the presentation via Zoom. Evan joins us now. Hey, Evan. Well, hey, Paul, I don't think it's a big deal to take an hour out of my evening and, and watch the talk. Uh, I, I'm, of course, interested because he is he is acting as a, a historian for the John Birch Society. And I've listened to his audio book. I've got his book on Kindle. And I've actually learned a lot about the John Birch Society uh, from him. That being per said, he, he's trying to insert his perspective throughout the book, which uh, sort of... It, He's constantly trying to demonize the John Birch Society to some degree, although I think if people, if they go to our website after taking a look at his book and they they, they talk to John Birch Society members, they, they may find out that we're much different than what he is asserting um, during the, the book. Dur during the talk yesterday, it was with a group of book club members. He, he's, he's trying to make it out that we, we are obviously racist and anti-semitic and you know it, I, i've been in this society for uh you know almost 11 years and it, it's it's we don't have members that are racist or anti-semitic uh what well, he is grouped in okay go ahead well i was gonna say uh first of all i do consider you taking one for i've read 
some of these people's books. As comms director, I had to read their articles. I watched their interviews and I read some of their books. And it's kind of nauseating after a while. And it's a lot of it's because of exactly what you just talked about. They go on and they try to paint this as anti-Semitic, as, as racist, as these crazy conspiracy theorists, which we, we, they weren't so crazy because clearly now we know that's, that's, uh, that's the truth. But let's talk about some of the falsehoods that someone like Dalek, who is, who is viewed as an expert, and that's the danger. Let's, let's, not, let's, let's, let's really uh, drill down into this because the danger is that people who don't know about us, they hear from him. He claims to be an historian, and he goes around and he says these falsehoods around us. What were some of them uh, that you heard last night? Well, if you don't mind, before we get into the falsehoods, he does give us credit. Uh, in fact, he says from roughly 1958 to the present, the Burke style of politics provided an alternative political tradition that challenged the left liberals and mainstream conservatives on multiple fronts. A little bit later in this paragraph, he writes, we need to find space in our periodization of American politics for French traditions in general and the rise of the Berkshires in particular. Call that period 1958 to 2022, the Bercher years. What he, I think, is hoping to do is to conclude that the Bercher years are over. Oh. And in my opinion, they're just beginning. I, I, he, he, what are some false things that he said? Well, I, he's, he, he, he doesn't think that, you know, he knows that we went against the civil rights movement due to the fact that we believed, and, and it was true that the Soviets were behind the civil rights movement. We had people like Julia Brown that spoke, and what he kind of hints at during the book and even during the talk yesterday is that those sorts of things, like when Julia Brown would speak, that didn't mean that we weren't racist. Although Julia Brown was obviously a woman with extremely you know, dark brown skin, she would have been considered Negro at the time or black. And you know, she was a friend of the John Birch Society. She was a member and she uh, always felt included. From and I've, I've had many discussions with people that actually went with her. We had members of the John Birch Society that would drink her coffee at restaurants before she would to make sure the coffee wasn't poisoned while she was traveling. That's how much our field coordinators and members cared about her is that we went out of our way to protect her because we knew that she was brave and that she was sharing the truth. So th that's one thing. They, they all, he also tries to make us out to be an anti-interventionist organization. Anti-interventionist meaning that we don't want, we absolutely are, um, against going to war at all times. We, we don't want to defend anything. And uh, as, as we all know, we're, we're a non-interventionist organization, this organization. We believe there is a time to declare war, but there's a constitutional way to do that. And uh, he also, at the end of the talk yesterday, I, I had posed the question if he thought the CF, if the John Birch site was on target when it comes to the topic of the Council on Foreign Relations. And he, 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 talked, he, he said with a resounding no, we were completely off when it came to the Council on Foreign Relations. If you read his book, uh, there's only, I think, uh, two mentions of the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, only one mention of Skull and Bones, but there are 121 mentions of the ADA, ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. Mm -hmm. He is really hung up on the fact that the Anti-Defamation League actually infiltrated the John Birch Society. They called these people Birch Watchers. The FBI, according to him, actually commissioned these ADL members to to go in and work with our members and employees and dig out stuff. And 
what amazes me is that although he, he's so hung up on this ADL uh, group that, you know, these members that would come in and pretend they were Birch members, uh, there's so little that, that came out of it. And um, to, to this day, they they don't have enough on us to like shut us down. We're we're a growing organization, mm-hmm. and it, it goes to show that he has to conclude at the end of his book that he wants it the Birch years to be ended in 2022. And we know that's not going to happen. No, no, no. I mean, the AP a couple of weeks ago they finally released a piece that they'd been working on for I don't know how long over a year because they came in, they visited, and this thing that you're mentioning, this whole they're a, they're a relic of the past. This seems almost coordinated. Obviously, I'm not saying they're coordinated. I don't know if Dalek talked to, you know, the AP reporter or whatnot, but that is part of what they want people to believe. And I think there is obviously a reason for that. And that is because we are dangerous to the establishments. We always have been. In 1961, I forget, uh, Edward, I forget, I believe it was Edward Hunter. He gave that uh, testimony to to, to Congress. And he was talking about how from... They received, the communists here received orders from Soviet Russia to nip the birchers in the bud because they were, in fact, uh, they were making a difference that we always have. And we continue to be. You're on the ground. You were a regional field coordinator. You're still on the ground there. And so obviously we're not, we're not a relic of the past. Um, what about the conspiratorial aspect? We are now, I feel like we've reached critical mass and we are at that point. Like, you know, another thing the AP said is that we are the heart of the fringe because we were the originals who said, hey, there is a conspiratorial plan for a new world order. Has Dalek acknowledged any of that? Well, he, he in his book, he talks about how Alex Jones uh, woke up because of the John Birch Society. So he gives us a lot of credit for that. He also gives us credit. You know, Ron Paul cites that he he had nothing. He 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 thought he disagreed with with the Birchers, and so these two key figures in what uh, you know kind of arose as the Tea Party movement in 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 the two thousands, uh, both are obviously okay with the John Birch Society and and and. And influenced by them, uh, he even cites in his book that Ron Paul was asked about the Council on Foreign Relations, and and Ron Paul agreed that there's very there's something to those theories. The yeah. John Birch Society, as you know, is all about the facts, and what these people like like Matthew Dalek have to continue on with is that they're based on theories, not on facts, mm-hmm. and that makes us so strong in the field is when we tell people what the facts are. Yeah. And if they thought of them as theories, then we're the ones that changed their minds on on those theories to make them help them understand they're based on facts. Thank you, Evan. Thank you. And keep, keep up the good work. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the New American TV. Remember to visit newamerican.com for more truth behind the news.